Hey friends, welcome back to the Black Diamond Podcast. This is your host, Eric Malzone. And this is the show where I have the absolute pleasure of interviewing entrepreneurs, founders, change makers, and people who are just creatively leading the way through innovation. And it's not only about successes and, and great stories, because you'll definitely get those, but it's also about the personal challenges and the vulnerability that we face along the way. So this show is brought to you by Level 5 Mentors, helping entrepreneurs and founders achieve the highest levels of freedom in five different categories, time, money, relationships, health, and purpose. And if you want to find out how you're doing in those five categories, we got you covered. We got a survey for that. Just go to level5mentors.com forward slash survey, and you can take the free entrepreneurial survey and see how you're doing in each category and see where you have room for improvement because, hey, we can always be improving. So welcome to the show. Let's get on to it. Garrett Tesla, welcome to the Black Diamond Podcast. Oh, what an honor to be here, Eric. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, this is like, uh, this is fully a full circle moment. And <laughs> to give people a little bit of backstory, I've known Garrett for, I don't know, a long time, maybe uh, even a decade. And uh, you were a member of my gym back in Santa Barbara, California. We became friends. I was there when you started your podcast, The Squad Room. And mm -hmm. it's fantastic. And we'll, we'll cover all of that. And you also were the one who really put the thought in my head to start a podcast. All of this is your fault. Oh, uh, I love it. <laughs> 650 take, episodes later, this is this you did this. I'll take full I'll take full responsibility. And I'm also now humbly embarrassed if I in fact did that. And here you have shot way past me on the episode mark. So uh, congratulations to you. That's awesome. I certainly remember sitting there in your kitchen when I had you on my show, I think at like episode four yeah. and I wheel over all sorts of recording equipment and stuff. And like we set up right there at your kitchen table and, and had a great conversation and I was just brand new to it too. So I'm, I'm glad to know that I helped plant that seed for you. <laughs> yeah, man, you really did. And it was, uh, <clears throat> you say I, but I've just done a lot of volume, man. You've really gone an inch wide and a mile deep. I've plastered across an industry in the fitness industry. Now this is a very open topic forum podcast, but you've really picked who you want to serve and you stuck to it for a year. How many, okay. So give us, let's start with your background now. Give us your, sure. give us your backstory. All right. Yeah. I'm a Sergeant for a Sheriff's office in Southern California. That's what I am now, but I actually moved uh, to Los Angeles from New York city. I was working in the film. I was working in the music industry in New York and moved out to Los Angeles to take a job helping start a record label for a film studio out, out in LA. And was that was my path in life. Was I had always wanted to work in music, always wanted to work with rock bands, rock stars, etc. I was a horrible musician myself, so I knew that my path was going to be involved in the, on the business side. And my dream job was to be what we call an A&R guy, artist and repertoire. And those are the guys that like go out to the concerts and look for the next big thing, the bands that everyone now knows as household names. And I tried my hand at that for a while and I was horrible at it. <laughs> I was, it was not my skill set. I was also a product manager. And so I did a lot of marketing and tour development and tour management kind of stuff. But in A&R, which I, I was just awful. Like, as a, here's a good example. So I, um, one of my assistants at the time begs me to come out and see her friend's band play. They're going to play on like a Friday night at a small club in Santa Monica. And it's this band uh, named Kara's Flowers. Horrible name. 
And I reluctantly went. And the club's packed and everyone seems to be having a good time, but I just didn't get the music. And we had an opportunity to sign them if we wanted to, or we had at least an opportunity to be in the game on signing them. But there was some interest. Other labels were sniffing around. But we, we let it sit, and I just was like, yeah, I don't hear it. I don't think they're going to be big. And so they changed their name to Maroon 5, and <laughs> <laughs> the rest is history. Another time, I, I went to a concert, this solo dude playing acoustic guitar with surf videos in the, on, on stage playing in the background. Like, who's this Jack Johnson guy? He, I don't get it. He's not going to be anything. <laughs> <laughs> so I clearly learned that A&R was not going to be how I put food on the table for my career. But that, I'm giving the long version of my background. But eventually, uh, after several years in Los Angeles, 9-11 had just happened. And as corny as it sounds, I felt called towards service. And I wasn't quite sure how to do that at first. But I always, I was always drawn to watching the LAPD and LA sheriffs. I lived right there on the jurisdiction border between the two. And I'd always see them out. And I always wondered, like, what kind of person could do that? What kind of person could go off uh, into the dark and literally, like, chase crime or fight crime and, and go after the bad guys? And long story, simply a little shorter, I decided I had to at least give it a try. And I barely made it through the academy. <laughs> and I say barely because I wanted to quit almost every day, but I didn't. And I just put one foot in front of the other. And here I am almost 16 years later, and I've had a wonderful career at work doing the service that I hoped I could achieve. And then, you know, yeah, right around the time we met actually, or 20, 2012, I think I was, I was just dealing with the effects of constant work and constant stressors of a first responder profession, carrying the 30 plus pounds of gear and the rotating shifts and sleep deprivation and the, the acute and the chronic stressors that go with the job. And I was starting to feel myself fall apart. And I had a long commute to a station at the time and podcasts were just becoming a thing. And I was listening to a lot of Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan and was getting a lot of good information, but it wasn't quite what I needed for me. And I have a background in radio, even before my time in New York and podcasts really interested me as a, like a creative thing. And I thought, I want to get these people on the phone and ask questions, but they're going to, if I just call up some of these experts I want to talk to, they're going to charge me 500 bucks, thousand bucks to, to talk to them. But I wonder if I had a podcast, if I could get their attention and talk to them and they would do it as consideration for the, for service. And sure enough, it, that kind of worked. And as this was going on, I'm talking at work about things I'm learning about sleep deprivation and the importance of supplementation and the importance of stress management and mindfulness and all those things. And people kept coming up to me and asking more questions like, hey, I heard you meditate. Can you tell me about that? And they do it under their breath, but it was telling me that my, my tribe really needed this kind of information as well. So the podcast was my way of putting it out there into the world and sharing that information with a group that I, I really do care very deeply about. That's such a good journey, man. And it really is <clears throat> when I look at when I started my first podcast, which is the future, actually a funny story. The first podcast I ever did, I recorded was for the gym. It was the Gravitas radio mm. and it never saw the light of day. Here's why I was in the same kitchen that you and I recorded your interview with me. 
And then I had my head coach, Danny, and then Becky, who you also know, she came in and we all, and I had this great conversation, Becky and I interviewed Danny and all of her background, everything you did and at the very end, Becky's, what's that flashing light on the <laughs> microphone? And I'm like, oh no, it was the mute button. And the whole thing was just blank air. And after that, I lost some of the <laughs> wind in my sails and uh, I didn't do it. But then once I did start the Future of Fitness podcast years later was when I had sold the gym and decided to go nomadic with my wife. I'm like, I got to gotta figure out something. I got to build this network. I got to start making content, you know, all the things you need to do. Mm-hmm. And when I found out so quickly, especially because I think my number three interview was Dan John, who is a big name in the world of strength and conditioning. And he instantly replied to my email. Hey, I know you're busy. I'm sure you're busy, but if I got this podcast, he's like, sure. Yeah. Call me tomorrow. And I was like, wow, (laughs) that was much easier than I thought it would be. Yeah. And that that's when I had that light bulb moment of, I get to talk to people super interesting. They love being interviewed. And even if like people are listening, like even if you have 20 downloads, you know, per episode, like, don't you think a lot of people would want to get in front of 20 people and just talk or maybe that long-term value of who knows when, you know, this guy's podcast or this person's podcast could go big three years from now. There's so many reasons to do it. As you look for guests, what is the process that you use? And are you ever surprised by how how difficult or how hard it is to create guests? No, quite the opposite. I've been surprised at how easy it is. Uh, My, my show is devoted Anybody can listen to it, obviously, but it's very specific to law enforcement officers. And I even go a little more niche than that. You say uh, an inch wide, a mile deep. And that's truly what I, where I go. I'm looking at, I'm talking to law enforcement officers in probably like the five to 15, maybe 20 year mark of their career. So that's my sweet spot. And of course there's firemen that listen as well and paramedics and fire, I should say firefighters, but there's a lot of, obviously there's a lot of tension and there's a lot of angst around the idea of policing right now, as frankly, as I think is warrant, warranted at times, but at the same time, people want to help. And I've been surprised at some of the people who I thought for sure would say no, who really just want to show their appreciation for what we do. And they do that by, by coming on the show and giving me their time. And I always try to find a nexus to my audience in some way. I, th- I always think I'm about to run out of guests and then I just start brainstorming and I come up with 30 or 40 more potentials. And it's just some of the bigger names obviously take a little more work or a little bit more patience or trying over and over again. Oftentimes someone will say yes, but they're such a busy person that it's just a matter of, of grit <laughs> to, stay, to stay with it. But no, it's been awesome. It's so much fun. And what's great about podcasts is the listener feels like they're in the room having as part of the conversation. They just haven't said anything yet. And so it's just, yeah, it's been a great experience. Who, this is probably a kind of an awkward question, but I'll ask it anyway. What, who've been some, just off the top of your head, who've been some of your favorite interviews that you've done? Ones I keep coming back to one is Clint Bruce, Clint. And this was early on. He's probably, I think episode like 36 Clint was uh, West Point, not West Point, sorry, Annapolis. He was a Naval Academy graduate, a former NFL player, and he was a member of SEAL Team 3, I believe. He was a lieutenant there. And cool story how I got to meet him. So I went to, called the Patriot Tour, but Marcus Luttrell of Lone Survivor fame, Taya Kyle, Chris Kyle's wife, David Goggins, 
was there and they all gave speeches and Clint Bruce was like the opening guy and he floored me. He was far better than all the others. And he talks about leadership and the difference between excellent and elite. And I, that one has stuck with me and just how gracious of a person he was. Yeah, I really do have, have so many. There's some of my favorites are just regular cops who've been in a very extraordinary situation. And we talk about how they got out of it. Josh Kamatal is a cop in Troy, New York, who was shot in both of his legs by a suspect and basically had to engage in a gun battle without the use of his legs and from a seated position. And he survived that. That's that, that one always sticks out. I do talk to a lot of military people because there's a lot of overlap in terms of structure and, and training and ethos and that sort of thing. Scott Mann, who's a Green Beret colonel, retired Green Beret colonel, has been on my show several times and we talk about trust and building relationships, which I think is important. Each episode, I have something that I just absolutely love about it. They're like little pets, each of them. There's something I love about each episode. I could keep going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. I've... I look back at some of my favorite ones and it's such a hard thing to pinpoint. Oh, I'm one of the things I want to ask you, cause you know, you and I have known each other and you've been a, a law enforcement officer for 16 years. Like you said, mm-hmm. 2020 was Interesting. Weird, weird in so many ways. Yeah. It just kept getting weirder mm-hmm. and, and more challenging. And also there was many silver linings from the year as well, of course, but law enforcement and specifically police came under a lot of scrutiny and I'm just curious, over your 16-year career, how have you felt, and I understand this is just one man's experience, but how have you felt that attitudes towards police and law enforcement has changed or has it not changed and maybe it's just now more publicly known due to media? Yeah, that's a that's a huge, huge question. But I think, yes, 20, 2020 was tough on many fronts. Not only did we have the civil un- unrest and the, and the George Floyd death in in Minneapolis, but we also had all the COVID things and some cops around the country were tasked with mask enforcement, social distancing enforcement, which is the antithesis of the ethos of what we really try to accomplish oftentimes. When I started, when I was trying to apply around and I was applying at, at agencies around Los Angeles, it was for my agency example. So The day I tested, the very first step in the process is a written test and then a physical ability test where you basically run an obstacle course. And there were 535 applicants there at that test. And my agency hired five of us. And that was common. It was very common in the mid 2000s, 2003, 2005, five, six, for about 1% of applicants to get hired. And there was just people lines and lines out the door of people wanting to come do this job. Then the hiring freeze and the recessions of 2008 hit, of course, and it took a long time for it to recover. And right as it's recovering and people and agencies are starting to hire again, the events in Ferguson happen. And we saw a huge dip in recruitment there, but also in the public's perception of us as well. And it hurt for sure. I've never seen anything like 2020 in terms of how it's put us at odds with the public both. And then after the, the insurrection at the Capitol this, at the beginning of this year, I think like we almost have it from both sides and it's, it's, I don't know. It's interesting. It's some of it is absolutely warranted. Some of the attention, some of the scrutiny, some of the calls for reform are absolutely warranted. 
other things I think are misguided and have long-term consequences that people haven't thought through. The taking away, for example, taking away qualified immunity to me is a, is disastrous because you have to be in People think that qualified immunity makes me immune from all civil liability for anything I ever do on the job. And that's not true. I'm very liable for the decisions I make and for my actions at work. What qualified immunity does is protect officers in those situations where they have to make a split second life or death decision. And it's the law is not clear on what they can and cannot do because there's still gray area. There's you will never be able to come up with every scenario a cop has ever faced and, and then present that to them in training. So we are constantly engaged in scenarios that are firsts for us or even firsts for law enforcement around the country. Every day at work is like a choose your own adventure book. Each day goes a different way, depending on what you do and what you choose to do or how, how you end up handling calls. And so to me, qualified immunity is, is already making cops leave. It's going to make it much harder to recruit people and it's going to get, it's going to get officers hurt is, is, is my concerns. Other issues of how we handle mental health and mental illness. Those are valid conversations to have. And I am more than happy to turn over all responsibility for mental health calls to someone else. It's a, such a huge part of what we do. The danger of course, is that those calls are dangerous. And we, those of us who are familiar with handling a suicidal person or a mentally disturbed person know how quickly that can churn and how it turns from calm to violent in, in a blink of an eye. And the idea that you could send people who are unarmed or untrained into these situation is laughable, I think, to any cop who's done this job for any amount of time. But the discussion itself is valid. What do we do about it? How do we help? Do we take this from a criminal issue to a, more of a mental health problem? Well, yes, we should. And then, but we need to fund those things. We could, there's a long conversation we can have, but that's just kind of my, me glossing over the, the entirety of 2020. Tough year. Yeah. And and we're seeing, I think we're still going to see more of it in the future. Yeah. And it's, you're right. It's a tremendously large question that I just tasked you to answer in five minutes. <laughs> and so you did great. And one of the things I've noticed over the last year or two is that there seems to be this tendency towards this reductionist thinking, right? An incident happens like George Floyd's death. And then all of a sudden, everybody's an expert and they re reduce it all down to a very complicated, nuanced, complex issue. And they say, defund the police. Mm -hmm. Or, and this just seems to be a trend that I'm noticing. And like here, even in Whitefish, we had <clears throat> protests at the ski resort, <laughs> Whitefish Ski Resort last weekend because one of the employees was at uh, an apres ski bar and another employee addressed her uh, with the N word. And then it became the whole even though there was action taken against him, the whole mountain and company was racist. And so it just became this, well, no, it was this guy, but he doesn't speak for everybody. And once again, it's this one police officer with George Floyd, like he, he's not the shining example of all police. And it just becomes this really easy for people to take because they don't want to take the time and have, they just want to hear a five minute soundbite. Like I just gave our audience, <laughs> they, they don't want to take the, let's have a multiple hour long or week or month long conversation about the nuances of the challenges and how it's different in every particular case. And that's the trend that kind of alarms me the most. And I think what happens to the, the microscope that 
the law enforcement industry or law enforcement sector was under was just a almost a symptom of a bigger problem. Mm-hmm. That kind of concerns me. I don't know. That's me ranting. Do you have any thoughts oh, yeah. on that? I think the vast majority of the people out there, the vast majority of citizens understand that we have a difficult job under difficult circumstances and they support us in general. Yeah. They don't support rogue cops. They don't support abuses of power, but they support the idea that, that there is somebody that needs to be able to go out and be a law enforcement officer. We're recording this on the heels of the shooting in Boulder. And that one hits home for me because I'm from that area. I have close friends in that neighborhood. And this, I read a story last night from someone who was in traffic and saw Officer Eric Talley going to the scene. And they didn't realize it was them at first, but after some thought, they put it together that this was the officer that ended up being shot responding to that King Super. So the vast majority of people understand that someone has to go and Mm -hmm. they appreciate that there are people out there willing to do that. The challenge is that those people are often also the quietest and that in the absence of verbalization or in the absence of, of overt support, the vacuum of the media becomes the loudest people get the most attention because they're the people that are the, are, are good for TV. And so what I always try to tell partners too, is don't let the media skew it for you. The media is already skewing it because there's a narrative and attention that they like to create because it, it's a good story, but it's not the whole story. So don't assume that regardless of what channel you're watching, that's the way that the rest of the country puts it. The other thing I'll say is that what we saw in Minneapolis, which we didn't see very much of after Ferguson was that this went international and we had protests all over the country. And there has to be, yes, I think some of it is very opportunistic people looking for a reason to riot or pillage or fight the cops. But I also think there's a very real conversation that needs to be had because this, there was such a visceral reaction to this around the country that I think we as cops, anyone in a leadership position has to think there's something valid to this and we need to figure out what it is. Yeah. It's it. I think about your example of who's loudest in the media. I actually bring it to like the dinner table. If you go out to dinner with people or you have people over and and in a a point of contention, a a hot topic comes up. Generally, if let's say there's a table of eight, one or two people will be very vocal, Mm -hmm. but then the other six, the quiet ones, you always, I always assume that everyone has the same opinion. (laughs) They're just not vocalizing it. Mm -hmm. And it's probably just not as strong of an opinion as maybe some of the other ones. I think most people agree, Hey, we need a police force. Hey, maybe they need more support. I think everybody, almost everybody agrees on that, but yet we, we take it as just, isn't that obvious? We don't say anything, but it's not obvious. I don't know. It's a strange time, man. I think it's just the amount of social media, obviously media in general has changed everything. It's no joke that people are polarized now, but it's just, yeah, it's interesting. Let me shift to something that I know you're very passionate about and that's leadership. Mm. I can't imagine with law enforcement or military organizations where leadership is so critically important, literally life or death. Yeah. In your mind, as you've interviewed so many people and you've been in this leadership role for a while and you've seen great leaders and probably some less effective leaders, what are you starting to surmise of what, what makes a, 
a solid leader. That's the, that right there is the journey and my quest that I think will (laughs) encompass me for the rest of my working days is what is encapsulated into one person and all that, right? Mm -hmm. There are so many, the, the question is almost unanswerable. If you like, you go to, if there's any that left that exist, you go to any Barnes and Noble or, or bookstore and that the leadership shelves are constantly pumping out new books on the topic. There's no one person who's writ- written the, the definitive book because it's such a moving target. And so what I love about like podcasting as a f- platform versus say written books, I love books too. I'm a total book nerd. I can talk to a hundred different leaders and take bits and pieces from each of them. Right now, which is just on the heels of the topic we just talked about, leadership in law enforcement is so important, more important than I think it's ever been. And it's it goes from the chief or the sheriff down to the line level officer who has no rank in the organization. And each one of those people has to learn to be a leader. And, and to lead from where they are. One of my constant sayings on my show is that leadership has no rank. And whether you're the brand new guy or the guy at the top, you have an opportunity to lead. And that's one of the wonderful things about policing that people often don't think about is you're the brand new guy. You, you're fresh out of the academy, fresh off field training. It's your first day in a patrol car by yourself. And I remember my first call out of the shoot on my very first day by myself and it was to a homeless man who was sleeping on the sidewalk. And right then and there, on my very first day is my opportunity to lead. And to lead by, I can choose compassion and choose to problem solve, or I can choose to not lead and just solve the problem in front of me, write a ticket, kick them out, whatever it is. That's a simple example, but we all have leadership opportunities every day. And my goal is to help law enforcement officers find the ways that they can lead regardless of where they're at. One of the things I think that people don't think about in policing and that I think is a, a hidden secret is that the chief or the sheriff, whoever's at the top of an agency actually has the least amount of power when it comes to how the agency mission is executed. It's all about the line level officer, the frontline supervisor, And as you go up the chain, you get less and less control over how your agency mission is executed. So you need to make sure that those line level people understand it and have the tools and capabilities to, to lead. That to me is like endlessly fascinating. Like it's different than other organizations because the chief isn't out there talking to, he isn't responding to calls. He isn't uh, handling the mental health crisis, the suicidal subject, the shoplifter, the domestic violence. He's not handling any of that. His officers are. And, and so how his officers treat the public, how they interact, the decisions they make, that's how people, that's A, that's how your culture, that's how the culture of your agency becomes your culture. But also that's how you are perceived by your public is through those interactions, not what the chief says. Chief could say anything. It doesn't matter. That's how people remember the last car stop, last time they got stopped, or when their car got broken into and the cop came out and cared or didn't care. That's how we create cultures, and we need to do that through leadership. Yeah, culture is a funny thing, right? When you look at leaderships and people who you think are doing it really well, do you think it's something that is – if you're going to give it a percentage, like what parts is it innate ability and what part of it is learned? Mm. 
I think almost all of it can be learned. If I'd say it, call out, call them the, the leadership candidate. <laughs> if, if someone is a, a candidate for a leadership position, which I would again say is anybody, some of those skills, some of the social skills are already ingrained in a lot of people, the empathy and the, and caring and just in, general interest in other people is ingrained in a lot of people already. Some people it's not for those people that it's not. I think that's the foundation of any leadership cultivating self-awareness and understanding that is not a trait that is natural to you, that you need to work on it. You can train for that and then you develop it, that skill that you didn't used to have. So I think, yeah, some people are born with a lot of it. Other people can develop it, but I think anybody can do it. Gary, when you, and I know you read a lot, you've obviously interviewed a lot of people. You're just engulfed in the topic of leadership. It's something that really you know, fires you up. <clears throat> Who have you come across in your life that personally maybe has been in a leadership role with you or above you in ranks that you feel has done it really a good job? Who would you like to call out in your lifetime as personal experiences? Hey, you, you did a great job or mm. you are doing a great job. I had the fortunate opportunity to work for a man named Barney Malekian. And the, the, I'll try and keep the story short, but the short version is Barney came from Santa Monica police department. He was there for 30 something years of, of his career rose to, I think the deputy chief level and then was tasked over to, or hired by Pasadena to become their police chief. And he was the police chief there for 13 years. He was the city manager for some time during that time. I think it was that he got his doctorate in public policy. And then he was tasked with, or he got tapped by President Obama to come run the DOJ office, the cops office at the DOJ. Cops is the community-oriented policing and problem-solving office where they give out grants for community policing-related activities, and they oversee the federal uh, response to local policing. And so he did that for some time, and it was around that time when I was in grad school and I was reading a lot of his white papers just for my own research in school. And um, so I knew the name and then all of a sudden he gets announced as our new undersheriff, which is for us is like any or any agency. It's usually like your second in command. And I scratching my head like, how did we land this guy? He's a big name. If there's like big names in policing, he's it. He's up there with the Bill Brattons or the Charlie Becks or those kinds of people. So anyway, he's a complete outsider. There was a lot of grumblings from people who were not happy that an outsider was coming in at such a high level, wouldn't understand the culture. And just watching him operate and watching him come in with humility and with a uh, real interest in people and empathy, watched him turn everybody, I wouldn't say everybody, but almost everybody, by the time he left, we were distraught <laughs> that he was leaving. <laughs> Because he had such a powerful impact in only three, four years before he retired from us. I got to have him on my show and we talked about self-awareness and knowing when the time was right for you to make moves. And something that's always stuck with me that he taught me was a question to ask yourself is, do you want to be right or do you want to be effective? And I was lucky enough to interact with him enough where, and I, I can, I have my own uh, foibles and really enjoy being right. And he would often say that to me and help me reframe whatever issue I was 
being challenged with. He's, he's just one of those people that constantly gives and very smart, knew the job inside and out. He, when people say he's a, he, the man was a cop's cop or it's like, there's a, there is a difference between some admin and then like a cop's cop kind of guy. And he was one of those guys. He understood what it was still like to be out at 2am in the dark and handling calls and stuff. Yeah. That's a guy that still, that will always stand out to me as just a really happy that I got to work with him. Yeah. Interesting. Here's a last question. And I think it's something that probably would help a lot of people because the majority of listeners of the show are not law enforcement. When you get off a hard shift and you go back into civilian mode, mm -hmm. what is it that you would like the rest of us to know of where your mind is, how we can be supportive? What can we do to be better supporters of law enforcement? I think this doesn't quite answer your question, but I'll get to it. But one thing I think we're learning more and more about, and we're seeing the real corrosive results of it is that you mentioned when we get off shift and we return back to civilian mode and what we're really seeing and beginning to understand is that physiologically, we actually don't do that. Our bodies are activated and our parasympathetic nervous system is is suppressed with the adrenaline of, of going to work and the potential for danger. And, and I can, on any given shift, you might have multiple kinds of adrenaline dumps, big calls, traumatic calls. And so your body stays in a state of hypervigilance all the time. And it's not like you could just peel off the vest and go home, kiss the wife and kids. And all of a sudden it's gone away. Your body is still in that fight or flight response mode. And you go home and you sleep for eight hours if you're lucky. And most cops probably are more in this five to six hour of night, uh, six hours of sleep a night. So now you're dealing with sleep deprivation and they go back to work the next day and they re-enter that fight or flight without ever having left it really. And it's this roller coaster. And that's why we see cops having heart attacks in their forties. And that's why we see some of the volatile or incendiary videos you might see is lack of, of faculty management from sleep deprivation and stuff like that. That's why cops often engage in other risky behaviors because they're not out of that system. And we've learned that, I don't know how many times I've talked to someone from like the SEAL teams or a Delta or like the Green Berets and they all, it's almost, it's funny because these guys have been in the worst of the worst. And then they look at cops and they go, oh man, I couldn't do that job. <laughs> I've had so many of those guys tell me that and they just shake their head and like, I can't do that. That's insane. Like you want me to do that four days a week for 20 years? Like they would say, like, I, I go on a deployment, it's four months and it's done. And then I come back home and it's a different country. I'm like, I'm not driving around my own neighborhood dealing with this stuff. So I, I, I guess the way that people can support us is understanding this sounds absurd. We're human. And the person behind the badge still has the same struggles you do. We are not perfect. We should be expected to be when we're in uniform, of course, or clo as close to it as we can get. But, you know, I tell people all the time, I've, I've never met a cop who didn't come into this job for any other reason other than they wanted to serve their community. And I know that sounds corny to the vast majority of people, but I'm lucky in California, I get paid a, a good salary. 
but there's cops in other parts of the country that get paid minimum wage with no health benefits and they have to work part-time at a grocery store to, to make ends meet, or they're constantly working overtime just to make ends meet. And it's like, who would do that job? There's no reason to do this job for the pay for the financial salary we get. So what we get in return is a psychological salary. We get paid something that's intangible that people don't understand. And that's that knowing that we've done something that day, we've done some good service. And I always try to remind my troops that you didn't have to save the world today. You only had to, you only had to help save one person. And we do that on every call in some way. We're human too. And we're not against the citizenry. We're part of it. You know, we go to the same churches, the same gyms. We have the same hobbies. We, our kids play little league with your kids and that's intentional. It's intentional that the police force is a part of the community and it's not an occupying force. So when the conversations are being had about defunding or this officer, or that officer did this or that, keep in mind the context that we're, we're part of your community as well. That was really good. This system was really good. And it was such a good reminder. I'll be the first one to raise my hand and admit that, especially in my 20s, I was a little prick. And sometimes I treated police when I was completely in the wrong with the completely wrong mindset. I regret that all the time. Mm -hmm. And it didn't serve me, it didn't serve the police officer, it didn't serve anyone. And they were in the right. And I think there's a lot of times where we just look at uh, a badge and we're like, you just, especially if you don't do well with authority, which I've had a history of doing as well, you just reject it and you forget that there's a person there, family, kids, friends, all those things that you just mentioned. And I think that's probably, I think this is going to be one of those interviews, Garrett, where it's just, this is going to sit subconsciously and digest for days mm. <laughs> because I think it's stuff that, that people really need to hear. And I think having more bridges between community and the people who police the community is so valuable and just more conversations. And I look at my little town of Whitefish here and there's about eight, eight or nine police here. Mm -hmm. And everywhere I go, people speak very highly of them and they're known. They just they'll walk into the barbershop and chat with the barber as I'm getting my haircut. And it's just like they all, and everybody who's been here for a while thinks the world of them. God. That sure there's an advantage of being a small town versus Southern California, which is a much different animal. But I look at that, I'm like, wow, that's really cool. That's it's it would be a great world if it could all be like that. So, man, I I want to respect your time. I could ask you questions forever because I think you have such an authentic point on stuff that's really important for our society and our communities. And Garrett, just man, I've known you for a while. Keep up the great work. You're creating influence that I don't think you even really understand yet. And it's, uh, it's an honor to, you know, call you a friend and come across your path and just keep up the great work, man. It's awesome. Uh, I appreciate that, Eric. That's hope you from that first episode we sat together through now, just I've always appreciated your guidance and your own mentorship too, whether it was, uh, teaching me how to do my back squat correctly, or just giving me tips on the business side. So I've always enjoyed our conversations. Yeah, man. Do me a favor, Gary. Tell everyone listening where, where they can find you. Where do you send them online? Sure. Yeah. So my the website is thesquadroom.net. The podcast is The Squadroom. Three, three different words. Socials at The Squadroom. You can find everything there. Awesome. Garrett, thank you so much, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. And yeah, hopefully we'll get to do this again. I think, I think there'll be some opportunities for that for sure. I'd love to. Thanks, Eric. Ladies and gentlemen, Garrett Tesla. 
Hey, everybody. This is your host, Eric Malzone. Don't leave yet. I have a few more requests for you. So if you got value out of this podcast, I ask you to do a few things. Number one, go to wherever you're listening, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and go ahead and subscribe to the show. Number two, while you're there, if you feel that we earned it, please leave us a nice review. Number three, share it. Whether it be social media, email, texting, whatever it may be, I'm sure you know somebody who would get value out of this episode just like you did. So please go ahead and share it. And that's how we get the word out. So it's really valuable and super appreciative. It only takes a minute of your time. Next, if you know of somebody, including yourself, who would be a great guest for the show, please head on over to level5mentors.com, L-E-V-E-L, the number five, mentors.com. Get in touch with me. Let me know what you're thinking. Uh, make an introduction, whatever it may be. You can also get me directly in my email, which is eric, E-R-I-C, at level5mentors.com. Lastly, if you just want to chat, you want to find out more, if you want to expand on some ideas, I love hearing from the audience. So go ahead and hit me up on social media. I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. You also have my email already. So I love to hear from you. I'm always looking for ways to improve the show and I'm always looking to have great conversations. So don't hesitate to reach out. And once again, thank you for listening to the Black Diamond Podcast and you can expect a lot more from us.